1: Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Thompson, Buildup's program coordinator, and I'm doing this week's guest introduction. This week on the nonprofit Buildup, Nick is talking with Sean Dove. Sean was the founding chief executive officer of the Campaign for Black Male Achievement, or CBMA, a national membership organization committed to improving the life outcomes for Black men and boys. Under Sean's leadership, CBMA leveraged more than $212 million in national and local funds for Black Male Achievement, and has grown to include nearly 6,000 individual and 3,000 organizational members across the U.S. Since 2008, Sean's leadership propelled CBMA from being an initiative of the Open Society Foundations, or OSF, into an independent entity that established an emerging field of Black male achievement. Among Sean's key accomplishments are helping seed the launch of President Obama's My Brother's Keeper initiative, brokering a partnership between OSF, Bloomberg Philanthropies, and the City of New York to launch the Young Men's Initiative, and serving as a lead organizer of the Executives' Alliance to expand opportunities for boys and young men of color. As evidenced by CBMA's commitment to narrative change, Sean has continuously created platforms to amplify voices and stories by marginalized people and communities. While he was the program director of the Harlem Children's Zone, He became the founding editor in chief of Harlem Overheard, an award winning youth produced newspaper. For his catalytic leadership, Sean has been recognized with numerous awards. In 2018, he was awarded the key to the city of Louisville by Mayor Greg Fisher and was named Black Enterprises 2017 BE Modern Man of the Year. He is also recipient of the Charles H. Revson Fellowship at Columbia University and was named one of Ebony Magazine's Power 100. Sean shared so many rich insights during this conversation, and we wanted everyone to receive those insights, so we broke this conversation into two parts. And with that, here is the first part of Nick's conversation with Sean Dove. Hi, Sean. I am really excited to have you
2: joining us for our Fast Build Leader Series.
3: Hi, Nicole. To Thank get- you so much for inviting me. I'm excited about what you're doing and this being part of the build up grade infrastructure design. So uh, <laughs> nice of course.
2: yes, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. To get us started, can you tell us about the Campaign for Black Male Achievement, your role, and the Campaign for Black Male Achievement's immediate priority?
3: Sure, sure. So uh, I know we only have about 15 minutes or so. And so I'm going to try my best to give you the microwave uh, answer. You should know better than uh, asking me that question with such a uh, <laughs> short, limited amount of time. The Campaign for Black Male Achievement is a national membership organization that focuses on working with leaders and organizations committed to improving the life outcomes of Black men and boys. Uh These are men and women across the country uh, that have committed to uh, this movement. As you know, we were launched 12 years ago at the Open Society Foundations, and we were supposed to be a three-year cross-fund campaign. And with partnership, with commitment, with urgency and uh, momentum, we were able to extend those three-year term limits, taking off those term limits and being scaled up. And we spun off into an independent entity in 2015. And our uh, focus is really about ensuring that the work of this movement and this field, that it grows, it sustains, and that it has an impact. I like to say that CBMA focuses on pouring into the hometown heroes and local leaders across the country. Not just Black men, you know, uh, leaders cross-sector, Men, women, all races and genders. And, uh, as you know, we just recently announced, uh, after 12 years that we are sunsetting the organization in 2020. Kind of a sad announcement for sure. But, you know, one of, uh, my mantras and just leading organizations is that if you can reframe what seems like failure, you can reframe your future. So we're focusing on so much that CBMA has built and ignited and seeded over the last 12 years, The priorities ensuring that there's a connectivity, that leaders and organizations within our network that are committed to this work, that they are connected to uh, other leaders and organizations in the field to continue the work and really also to celebrate the legacy of the Campaign for Black Male Achievement, right? We've, uh in 12 years, helped to catalyze a field that really did not exist. And I'm really proud of that.
2: No, I've had the good fortune to do work with CBMA, both when it was this Open Society Foundation, and then spinning off into its own entity and, you know, serving on the, the board of CBMA. So i am witnessed firsthand the great work that CBMA and the CBMA team is doing. I would love it, Sean, if you could talk a little bit about just what that transition was like from being a campaign, like talk about what it means to be a campaign within a large philanthropy, to then going to that spin where you become an independent entity and how do you maintain some of those campaign elements that made the work super exciting and, and, and had so much momentum around, but now you're building a sustainable organization and you became that independent entity?
3: Uh, I think that's a really a great question that I've been reflecting on uh, a lot these days as I think about the journey over the last dozen years. And I think one of the things I've learned, uh, you know, everything is all revolves around and resolves <laughs> around leadership, right? And You know, the proverbial uh, adage of getting the right people on the right seats on the bus. And I think uh, when I think of uh, when we launched in 2008, I think there are three things that are really important about this whole notion of a campaign. One, Open Society Foundation was taking a risk, right, of making a, creating a uh, fund explicitly focused around black men and boys unapologetically to this whole sense of urgency. And originally it was a three-year uh, campaign and like, wow, you know, typically the downside of philanthropy and there, are, you know, uh, sometimes I feel like I have a love-hate relationship with philanthropy has been very catalytic and has ignited and infused a, a lot of change. But on the other side, I think that uh, philanthropy sometimes looks at generational and even centuries-long issues and systemic issues uh, in this nation and around the world, and believe that they're going to tap a three-year or five-year grant-making cycle. And I am both a uh, social entrepreneur and uh, being able to work within large institutions like Open Society Foundations and social entrepreneur and have the ability to transition from social entrepreneur to social entrepreneur over the last 12 years. But when I think of uh, the launch, I think of three things. I mentioned one, risk-taking, that is important, first of the institution, but me as a leader, right, and pushing boundaries uh, within the organization, acting with urgency. I remember Rashid Shabazz, and I always approaching our last, our grant dockets or our next event or gathering that saying, you never know, this might be our last, right, and, and treating that work and mission with a sense of urgency. And the other is uh, momentum, risk, urgency, and momentum, and find out where there is momentum. It is clear when we are looking at structural racism and oppression in this uh, nation, that no one entity, one one leader is not going to create a shift or a change, that it requires strategic partnership, it requires where is their momentum and I think that those three things were central in this whole campaign mindset, risk, urgency, and building momentum.
2: And you also talked about, like, so if we move from that, that shift of moving from a campaign within a philanthropy to becoming an independent entity, and now you're talking about sunsetting and you mentioned that during this period, you're really focused on how do you um, maintain that connectivity? among leaders, particularly like the homegrown, hometown leaders, and making sure that happens. And so in your role as CEO of CBMA, how are you ensuring that that connectivity is is happening long after CBMA
3: sunsets? One thing I will say is that, so while CBMA is a sunset, the work and the need for the work of the Black Male Achievement Movement certainly is not sunsetting. At all. I would say that, you know, through our membership network of 8,000 leaders and 3,000 organizations, CBMA, I think, has done a really phenomenal job through its just community building, connecting leaders to give folks a sense of belonging and a sense of that they are part of something larger than themselves. And so, you know, our convenings like Rumble, Young Man Rumble, Promise of Place have been uh, opportunities for our leaders and organizations to not just identify with the campaign for Black Male Achievement, but to identify with other leaders, both in their own cities and across the nation. And I think that that will certainly continue. You know, when we announced this sunset, you know, I was clear that CBMA had done groundbreaking work over the last 12 years, uh, but a wave of emails, texts, phone calls where folks said, if it were not for CBMA, they would not be doing this work. They would not have continued this work. And, you know, uh, I think that mission field that CBMA has provided is not necessarily within an organization. It is in, I would say, more of this organism, this movement and this connectivity that we've helped to uh, engender. And so there are plenty of partners in the field, uh, many of whom that CBMA helped to seed and fund to uh, uh, get started. Groups like Cities United and uh, Colesbach, the Coalition of Schools, Educating Boys of Color, Be Me Community, Echoing Green and their BMA uh, Fellowship. And that's just uh, a small sample of the uh, many organizations and efforts, uh, both locally and nationally, that CBMA has seeded. I think more importantly, behind those organizations are uh, leaders that we have uh, poured into, that we have, in some cases, validated their work, where the field is, it's fragile, right? It's... uh, While this has been a 400-year, I think, battle and fight for racial and social uh, justice, the field of Black male achievement is relatively a nascent field. And I think we are dealing with uh, many issues of inequity when it comes to funding, when it comes to uh, who gets supported and who doesn't get supported. And so I do think that moving forward, that there will uh, certainly be more of a need of Deeper collaborations, in some cases, consolidations of organizations emerging. Look, some organizations are uh, not going to uh, survive this COVID nineteen uh, season. I think CBMA is an example of that. I think that we had uh, some underlying conditions before the pandemic and were placed on a organizational uh, respirator once COVID nineteen really began to. Create some shifts with uh, uh, just relationships and, and, and with funding, and I just see uh, there's I guess two ways to look at it, right you know what's the opportunity? And I do think the opportunity is all right here's an opportunity to start something new end something and begin anew. but I think that we need to see the infrastructure and sustainabilities of organizations sustainability of organizations focused on. You know, one of the things, Nicole, that has struck me during the pandemic that, you know, some folks have seemed surprised about the racial disparities and inequities that uh, COVID-19 has uh, lifted up and has amplified. And look, if you've been doing this work, it's not a surprise these inequities and disparities existed before COVID-19. And I do think that We have to be very careful. Uh, I look back at Katrina. I look back in 2015 when Baltimore, as a city, uh, dealt with the uprisings around Freddie Gray, move killing, and there was a great deal of uh, talk, in some cases, actions about change and resources coming in and the ability to build uh, the infrastructure and with organizations and leaders that are closest to the issues and closest to the solutions are going to uh, be important and when you talk about philanthropy and we look at our mutual history in the field of philanthropy, I think we have to be really careful to ensure that we don't make the same mistakes. I have seen where some foundations are creating positions around culture and racial equity And that we have to be mindful that we cannot put a racial equity icing on a cake that has ingredients of white privilege and white supremacy and disparities because when you cut that cake and you bite into it and you get past the racial equity icing, the ingredients will remain the same, right? So we got to start all over and we have to build and bake new infrastructures and, and, and new systems and get everybody in the kitchen, right? And and, and to contribute. And I think that that's what I am uh, most excited about with the work that's uh, happening. And the other thing I will say is that finding the right place for right leadership and right organizations, I think one of the challenges that CBMA faced was really uh, forming its organizational identity whether or not we were going to uh, do direct service or be an intermediary uh, organization. And I think since the spinoff, we went through uh, at least two strategic planning processes and engagements trying to figure that out. And I would advise any uh, CEO or leader of an organization uh, that's listening to this is to number one, get really clear on what you want and what type of organization that you want to lead. I had a mentor that said to me, be clear on what you want. And I think that clarity of uh, results and what you're trying to achieve is uh, gonna be like really important in this next phase. And I will say that black people in this nation, we have a history of uh, transforming adverse conditions and challenges into uh, assets and uh, I think that this COVID-19 pandemic moment is an opportunity to gain deeper purpose, deeper power, but it's going to certainly have to come with deeper collaborations and connections and, and, and in some cases consolidating. I don't remember what the question was. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember if I answered it. I don't know if I answered it. But,
2: uh, the, you did. And, you did. So. Have, so it was really powerful. And you said a lot of things that really resonated with me. And you talked about validating other organizations and leaders and um, really focusing on connectivity and collaboration, looking at how organizations are set up and making sure that infrastructures are strong and sustainable. And so these are things that all resonate with me and make me really think about how we're building organizations and how philanthropies are funding these organizations and supporting them. And so a question I would have for you, based on all of what you have just explained and um, the work that uh, CBMA is doing that you are focused on, what would be your advice to funders? Beyond the advice of give more money, but what would you say to them? so that they could support nonprofit sustainability, both within the crisis that we're currently in and also beyond?
3: Yeah, so I think the number one thing, Nicole, I would say to uh, philanthropy and and funders is to trust the leadership of the organizations that you are uh, investing in. That's number one. I would say trust that you don't have all the answers, right? trust even the leaders that you're investing in does not have all the answers and they may have the vision but the importance of investing in building a team and building uh the infrastructure of the organizations and there has been so much talk about projects of support versus general operating support and i think the best way to demonstrate trust is to Give general operating uh, support over a long, long term. I would also say infuse a spirit of uh, entrepreneurship in your grant making and in your relationships that comes with the trust that allowing leaders and organizations to be transparent or creating a space to be transparent about mistakes and accountability. And that everything is not going to work, right? And where there is a space where this is a learning environment, that there is a partnership and kind of dismantling the power dynamic of the funder here and the grantee here creates, I think, a space where there is more of an exchange for a learning. I would also ask funders to help grantees to diversify theirs. Revenue streams. If we are dependent upon as social justice and racial justice leaders and change agents and social entrepreneurs, uh, we're dependent upon philanthropy as our sole source of uh, uh, revenue. We are um, in trouble, and the ability to partner with leaders and organizations to create other revenue streams. Whether it is a, a you know fee for service or uh, other ways to generate, ironically at the time CBMA made the decision to sunset, we had laid the groundwork for a membership fee, paid membership fee uh, structure, but that kind of collided with the uh, uh, pandemic. And I think philanthropy can be really helpful with. Let's look at ways to create alternative revenue stream for leaders, and and I think that. That would be an advice and to be a partner more so than just a funder.
2: I really like that. And when you're talking about trust, um, I think it's so true that that transition from project support, certain deliverables or uh, for limited periods of time versus general support over long periods of time, multiple years, for example, it really does depend on do you trust this organization? To do what they say they're going to do, right? And having a relationship that is built on trust. But I want to push that answer a little bit more to find out how does a philanthropy take that first step? Because I hear a lot, particularly now that everyone's talking more about yes, you need to trust the organizations and trust the leaders that are that you're funding or supporting. But how does a philanthropy who has been giving project support for years upon years has only provided general support to large organizations that they have been working with for a very long time. How do they make that transition to provide general support over multiple years to some of these organizations that you were talking about earlier, the grassroots organizations that are closest to the communities in need, but also closest to the solution? How do you help them take that first step? What does that look like?
3: Wow. So uh that's a powerful question, Nicole. Uh, and It's almost hard to infuse within the funder the permission for them to fail, right? I do think that as grant makers, we have to be comfortable with, you know what, this may not work out, (laughs) right? And giving ourselves permission to fail. I think that, that that's one thing, right? I think the other thing is also incumbent upon uh, leaders of the organization and, and 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 their teams, right? That I still think that you have to state the case that this is, or your organization is a sound investment, right? And that there is one, track history. Two, there is a vision and there is a plan. Three, there is a team. Because look, you know, at the end of the day, uh, folks are investing in leadership as opposed to programs and projects. I think for just, I would go back to the ability that, you know, this is a a learning, experience and what are we learning together? Now, one of the things that, you know, the Campaign for Black Male Achievement had, it still does a number of uh, mission mantras. And uh, one of them uh, is that together... We are a, a thinking, doing, learning, growing, teaching enterprise, right? And I think it's really important that funders allow uh, organization and leaders uh space not to just be doing, 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 because the first thing, well, the first thing is together. The second thing is thinking. The uh opportunity to have space for uh, planning, right, and to, I would say room to think about the path forward, particularly when we're living in a society where stuff is just changing rapidly, right? Here we are on uh, May 25th and on February 25th, the world for us was totally, uh, totally different. And then after the doing, an opportunity. what are we learning here, right? Uh, what are we learning and uh, what do we even learn from our mistakes and what are our failures? And then the growing piece, and understanding that everything does not have to be like scale is not the uh altar that we all need to go to and throw our uh resources and our visions so some stuff certainly needs scale right and for some organizations uh scale is not necessarily the in all this impact where they are right and the ability to teach and help others learn what they're growing. So I think that those factors are truly important in the funder, the donor, you know, grantee, leader, organization, investment, and understanding that shift. You know, happens. Like, you know, there are going to be changes, and the ability to be flexible and adaptable. I think one of the things uh, that we have seen in this pandemic is our ability as leaders to be adaptable and uh, creative, right? And uh, sometimes that, a lot of times, it requires uh, making tough decisions and uh, saying no to the status quo.
2: No, I, I like that response a lot, Sean, because I think what, in addition to scaling, I hear a lot about innovation. And what we don't hear is the before innovation, which is exactly what you're talking about which is permission to fail, the learning, the growing, experimenting with things that may not work out, but you're all working towards a particular goal. So I I really like that. So on the other side of that conversation, we talked about the advice that you provide to funders, but what's your advice to nonprofits that fundraise as a significant part of their budget? In other words, what do you think should be top of mind for them, particularly now during this time of uncertainty?
3: So... This is the advice that I would give not-for-profits and more specifically leaders of not-for-profits. One, work harder on yourself than you do on your job. One of the, uh, I think, primary epiphanies for us over the 12 years with the Campaign for Black Male Achievement is that kind of reaffirming, less of an epiphany, but an affirmation when you're doing race work, so to speak, there's a psychology around it. It is draining, it is hard, it is emotional, it is uh, historical. We are blessed to do this work, but we are also burdened to do this work. And so when I say, you know, work harder on yourself than you do on your job," I would tell leaders that you are way more than your resume. You are uh, way more than your organizational chart. If you do not have and are not using uh, mentors, executive coaches, and a therapist, you will be hard-pressed to be sustained in doing this work, right? And one of the books uh, that I would recommend, not the only book, this is not my book question, uh, is this book by Scott Belsky called the Messy Middle, right? And I think I, I may have sent you uh, that book that really dives into, uh, you know, we hear about the launches and uh, we hear about the finishes, but The Messy Middle is uh, every bold adventure deals with this, with organizational challenges and leadership champ challenges. And one of the things that uh, Belsky says in this book is that the only sustainable competitive advantage in business, in social entrepreneurship is self-awareness, right? Uh, I have on my wall, this above all, to thine own self be true, right? And it must follow as the night, the day, thou canst not then be false to any man, right? So be true to yourself. So beyond that, which is a lot of uh, work and carving out time for that, I would imagine that at least 20% of your listeners uh, right now are feeling burnt out, feeling pressured, uh, feeling that they are at their wits in trying to stand up an organization, sustain an organization, and not giving enough attention and focus to sustaining and standing up themselves as uh, human beings. The other thing I would provide leaders and organizations not-for-profits, right, and, tempted not to say not-for-profits because, you know, what we're really talking about here is people, right? And the people make up the organizations. And and you've heard me talk about these five building blocks, right? And one is focusing on building your team. You are only as good as your team and the folks around you. And that team uh, includes not only your staff, but also uh, on your board, right? So uh, that's the, uh, you know, uh, first thing, you know, building the, uh, the enterprise. The other thing is building capital. We know that cash flow is king, right? And being able to build and, and, and manage uh, capital. The third building block I would ask folks to focus on is uh, building community. And what I mean by that is building your tribe, building your network, Building your strategic partners that know one organization. You know, it's a cliche that dream work takes teamwork. It's a cliche, but it's uh, it's true, right? That your ability to build community and folks that are believers in you and your work is really uh, uh, important. Uh, the fourth building block is uh, around building the brand and building The uh, strategic communications and the voice and the the stories that you want to tell. An organization that does a good job of that is Be Me uh, Community and their leader and founder, Travian Shorters, often says that we lead the lives around the stories that we tell to ourselves, right? And being really clear about a story that the organization and then you want to uh, uh, tell. You know, for example, CBMA's, uh, chief uh, mission mantra and and, and story that we convey is that, you know, there's no cavalry coming to save the day in Black communities, right? That we are the iconic leaders that we've been waiting for, the curators of the change that we're seeking to see, right? And so a grant is not necessarily going to save the day. In my time at Open Society Foundations, uh, the most empowering interactions for me have been when leaders have said, you know what, it would be nice to get a grant for Open Society Foundations and for the Campaign for Black Male Achievement, but I don't care if I get a grant or not. Being part of this movement is an important thing because there's always more demand than supply. And the fifth building block is building value, right? And being really clear on the value proposition and the unique change That your organization and that you bring as a leader, right? And so, in summary, those five building blocks of building the enterprise slash your team, building capital, building community, building the brand, and building value, right? And your challenge is if you're a CEO of an organization, is one, understanding that you can't do all of those and that. Making the right hires at the right time and being able to manage your time and energy on where you're going to focus and your time and energy on those five building blocks is I think the big challenge that uh, leaders of organizations have.
1: And that concludes part one of our conversation with Sean. Sean provided so many leadership gems and wisdom that we could not fit it all into one episode. Stay tuned for part two next week. Thank you for listening
0: to this episode of Nonprofit Buildup. To access the show notes, additional resources, and information on how you can work with us, please visit our website at buildupadvisory.com. We invite you to listen again next week as we share another episode about scaling impact by building infrastructure and capacity in the nonprofit sector. Keep building bravely.